It's Non Sequitur Night on Pie Factory Podcast. Hi there. I'm Brian Colon, and I'm the creator of Rampage, the arcade game, among others. And you're listening to the Pie Factory Podcast with Sean and Jim. Unless I'm not supposed to say their names because the kind of stuff they put out there probably makes me think they want some anonymity. However, the fact that I misplaced, misplaced, mispronounced anonymity means that this whole thing is for shit, and I, that's why I probably shouldn't do intros. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> Well, you know, Sean, at that point, I said, rainy days and Mondays always bring me down. And, you know, I don't know why I said that, because I have no idea where that came from. Well, what happened next? I wish I knew, because I was totally out of it by that point. Hmm. And, oh, wait a minute, are we recording? Um, I, I hit record. Yes, we are, because I hit the record yeah. button. So, hello, everybody, once again. I can't fool our listeners. <laughs> of course, just by the fact that they're listening to us proves that they're fools. Yep. <laughs> Oh, wait a minute. Uh, no, we love you. We love our listeners. And we're sincere when we say that. Yeah. No, seriously. Uh, hey, welcome to another fantabulous episode of the Pie Factory Podcast, or the PFP, if you're one of those people that are into uh, using initials when you speak. Once again, from the Pie Factory Logistics Center in Morris, Illinois, this is Jimmy G. Oh, so they moved you back to the Logistics Center. Well, yeah, they closed the office in Verona because, you know, servicing half yeah, a person yeah. a month wasn't worth it. But, um, anywho, uh, from Pie Factory Headquarters North, um, I forgot my name. Oh, uh, I'm, I'm Sean. I'm, I'm anywho. tired, Sean. You know what? You say anywho, but I prefer the one with uh, Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend. So, you know, oh, it's me not too. just oh, anywho. Gonna see them in May yeah. or March or whenever oh, really? the heck they are. Yep. Oh, wow. We were That's supposed to cool. see him in the fall, but Roger Daltrey got sick. Uh, I, You know what? The only mainstream concerts I have ever seen, the only non-Christian concerts I've ever seen in my life are Cheap Trick and Weird Al, and that's it. I keep wanting to get tickets to see King's X, but I never find out when they're, until, when they're in town until after, you know, until after all the tickets have been sold out or when I don't have money. I thought they were Christian, too. Not anymore. Uh, they uh, they did have their roots in Christian music, but they've over time grown and uh, and uh, had, realize there's not much money in yeah, it. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, but uh, they're still widely considered one of the best rock bands ever that nobody's listening to, which is weird. I was just reading a article about the top twenty three piece bands in rock history, and King's X was number nine. And I can't remember who the top ones were off the top of my head. Uh, I, I do know that King's X was nine. I believe ZZ Top was eight. And uh, Rush was 20, which I kind of like Rush. I'm not a huge fan, but I kind of like them. They've yeah, had some good Rush songs. Rush isn't bad. They're not bad at all. No, no, they're not. I, and I really wish I would have seen them. Uh, Genesis was like number 15 or 16 or something. And I am one of the few people on this planet that apparently likes Genesis with Phil Collins. I, I was just never a huge fan with uh, Peter Gabriel, although I've heard a few tracks off of The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, and that's a pretty good album. But other than that, I'm a, I'm a Phil Collins guy, and I am not ashamed to admit it. You know what? I'm going to make you a mixtape. You like Phil Collins? I've got two ears and a heart, don't I? Don't tell me your troubles, Mac. You know, it's just a job I do. So, I guess I seem to have an invisible touch. Okay, um, uh, no. getting out of this land of confusion... 
Um, no. Uh, we. Uh, this is going to be a v- very special episode of the Pie Factory podcast. Normally, we don't like to do a v- very susudio. Oh crap! Now <laughs> I'm doing it. I'm one of the few people that actually liked that song. This is a very special, very special episode of the Pie Factory where we actually have our first interview with a game designer. And Ooh, do yes, tell. Do tell. Uh, I was talking about Phil Collins a boat moment ago. This time, we're, I'm going to be talking about Brian Colin. It's spelled like mm. Collins, except with oh, one L and no S. I see what you did there. And uh, he is the... Nice transition. Yes, thank you. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, hope it was good for you, too. Um, any rate, so yes, he's the creator of such games as Pigskin, Arch Rivals, Xenophobe, Rampage. He's done graphics for games like Spy Hunter and Discs of Tron, and he's still in the gaming business, and... Uh, Games like Spy Hunter and Discs of Tron, or the actual games Spy Hunter and Discs of Tron? Okay, Mr. Literal, it's the actual games. <laughs> Nobody likes a literalist. But so, uh, Brian Colin. Brian huh? Colin, and uh, his company's still in the... Sh- oh, that's, oh, the F is separate. Okay, I thought it was Brian Colin. Colin? Brian F. Colin. Yes, so we've got a, uh interview with Brian Colin. It's Brian F. Colin, but I think the F goes at the end of Brian. And uh, what say Brian Brian F. Cullen. So what say that uh, we listen in to the interview with Brian F. Cullen? We're like a fly on a wall. We'll listen to a good portion of it at least. We will, of course, be putting the entire interview on our show notes page, in- including the bad portion, which you're not going to hear. And I got to tell this story. We got this interview set up with Brian, and. He emails us. He says, hey, I think I can get a meeting room for us. And I think it was going to be where he works in Downers Grove. And then he emails us later and says, hey, guys, I couldn't get a meeting room. Uh, would you mind meeting at Galloping Ghost Arcade instead? It's like, hmm, corporate meeting room <laughs> or arcade. It's like, yeah, I think I can deal with an arcade if that's all you have. <laughs> yes, twist our leg, why don't you? With that, without further ado, let's, uh, let's listen into the interview. I, 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 whenever I play, I'm getting ahead of it, but yeah, I, I had nothing to do ever with any home so. version of any game I've ever done. Whenever I play this in the arcade, I'm always playing Dr. Quack. I love <laughs> Dr. Quack. I mean, he's like my favorite character. I oh, just love um, any opportunity to throw out some bad puns. Even Xenophobe. Boy, you okay, can tell it really thank you. We were, we were wondering. Xenophobe, Xenophobe? It's Xenophobe. It's Xenophobe. Xenophobe. It's Xenophobe. Your last name, Colin, likes the... Per, uh, ex- Bolin. The, uh, Colin, okay. Bolin. Okay. Yeah. I keep saying Colin. Yeah, but yeah. everybody says Colin. It's Colin. Okay. But I'm thinking we have that on well, recording. Collins we'll make sure we include that. Right. Right. It's cool. Because we're all about pronunciation, you know, like, uh, what's that Namco game where you shoot the things in space? I used to call it Galaga, because yeah, it was, no, it no, was no. because yeah, no. Galaxian, Galaga, and everybody else calls it Galaga. Galaga. But we found out that the official name, the, the official way it's pronounced... According to from, Midway. According to Midway is Galaga. No. Galaxian, Galaga... There's a blogger who actually talked to he people who worked at Midway. Actually, talked to people that worked at Midway. Said, I like, worked at Midway. I worked at. Okay, so, how did oh, you God, say it? No, That's oh, right. You did work. Are you recording? No, I said it the way everybody else. I, okay, that it was in development. Now we didn't make it there. That was right. a, you know an import, but yeah, we also. Oh. Made it again. That's true. Oh boy, Rampage so, and, Z- and Xeno- Xenophobe okay, were well, midway games. There you, okay, so, so should we? So. Oh, should I go? Should, should I go back to saying Galaga then? And oh, so you say anything you want. The, okay. uh, the, the <laughs> they're all is, silent. The thing is the, uh, and then on here you did mention Swackery is my first game. Swackery is 
probably about my seventh or eighth game. Okay. I was going to say, Zachary, I was Zachary was, well, I, I know Zwackery was well after, like, Rampage and that. The, my fact, first, game, my first game was Discs of Tron that I worked on that was released. I actually worked th- on a couple Yeah, of I thought I heard you say that before. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, wait, Discs why does this thing say Zwackery? Zwackery is the first game that um, management called a, an employee a designer. And they did it in front of Nolan Bushnell. So mm. I was on cloud freaking nine, man. <laughs> I went out cheap. Because prior to then, it was always, you know, no, none of us are designers. or We're all designers. We're not We're not putting out, you know, no one in particular. You know, Depends just, on who came into the office. Yeah, day. well, it was always, you know, about money. Because they, they figured if, if someone starts calling themselves a designer, then, you know, they want more money. So they were always like, no, no, we're all designers. Or none of us are designers. Kind of like the, uh, the whole Atari thing back there, the rumor that goes... Some of the higher ups said that the uh, the programmers at Atari uh, were no more important than the people in marketing. That's, That's the pretty well, and, and, and that sounds absolutely true. I mean, I, we literally had a <laughs> we literally they would try different things because management had no clue why something was fun, why something wasn't fun, mm-hmm. how they should make games. Some would score, some would get turned around quickly and, and you know, make a ton of money. Some they would beat to death on for a year and a half and never make a dime. Back in those early days, they let the development group kind of, we were autonomous and they, they had money, they wanted a group, but they really didn't know what they were doing. But when they would try and step in and say, okay, we're gonna get organized, I literally had a design group they decided at one point it was going to be a design group that involved someone from QC, someone from the the uh, production line, someone from marketing, someone from sales, and an artist and a programmer and a sound guy. So you got you know seven, eight people in a room, three of whom are going to be doing the work, and five of whom don't play games. They sell them. They do mm-hmm. whatever you know. So and of course you know once. They all, but the initial, now this is the way we're going to do them from here on out. They tried that once. None of the games that came out of that, those discussions, <laughs> you know, yeah, even I, got started. I, but, I could imagine. So, yeah, no, I'm sure at some corporate level they say, yeah, no, the programmer's more important. And I worked with a lot of programmers, worked with a lot of people. It, everything was about an individual's desire. Programmers, you know, by and large, forgive me programmers out there who want to kill me, you know. <laughs> You've got, they're not creatives, in th- generally, although they are much more in this industry than they are, in, you know, if they're working for the phone right. company. But, you know, there's levels. And, I mean, there are guys, you know, I've been lucky enough to work with guys who were incredibly creative and incredibly passionate about what we were doing. But then you have, I've also worked with guys who, you know, this is what I was told to do. This is what I will do. I am done now. Thank you. And that's not how you make a game that's tuned, that's mm-hmm. fun, that's, you know, engaging. I'm a developer myself, and you're absolutely right. You know, programmers are, they, they program, they, they're not creatives. I totally um, agree. I, would, I, I, I didn't, I I didn't would, say that, and I don't think they're going to come back and beat the crap out of me. <laughs> Some of the, if not the best designers I've ever worked with are also programmers. I have worked with my share of programmers who don't get that they're making entertainment. And as such, I simply have fulfilled my checklist and I am done, as opposed to, ooh, what can I do right there to just make that a little bit faster, cleaner, smarter, sharper, funnier? And that's the difference between, for me, between a game programmer and a programmer. 
Game would, programmers are creative, but there are plenty of programmers in the industry that aren't game programmers. How about that? Yeah. I would argue programming in general is an art form. Everything's it's an every, art form if you've got... If you are willing to put your passion into it, it doesn't matter yep. whether you're you're Good point. you're working at a body shop or you're working at a restaurant or you're working. Art comes from within and drives you. It's the difference between enjoying what you do yes. and not enjoying what you do. And if you, someone asked me not too long ago, it's like you know as a you know what is it that you know how? It's like. The thing I'm proudest of in terms of being a designer is, is not about so much being a designer. That's a creative challenge. It's someone dang, dangling, you know, put a problem in front of me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's cheese in front of a mouse or a, a rat in my case. But <laughs> um, but the thing that I'm proudest of is also the thing that I can't take credit for is finding the fun in everything. For me, that's what an artist does. Mm-hmm. And I mean, some artists are maybe very dark and they don't find the fun in everything. But my particular brand of art is finding the fun. The late uh, Roger Ebert says video games are not art and never will be, but, you know, everybody's wrong about something. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> uh, well, I thought I was wrong once, but I was mistaken. Ba-da-ba-ba-da-bum-pa! <laughs> okay. So, uh, should we uh, get to some of these these questions here? Are we started yet? Uh, we've um, actually been recording. I guess so, yeah. We've okay. Been, yeah, we've been recording uh, I would like about- to. I would like to make a disclaimer then. Anything yes. said prior to now that offended anybody was uh, probably my fault. Okay. <laughs> hey, what was the other disclaimer you wanted to make? Oh, I can't make that one with a straight face. Okay. But I am old and but I have this a is an audio of dementia podcast, so. in my... I'm 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 a, I'm a veteran game designer. I've been doing this for about 35 years. So my memory is, um, let's say, segmented. So I may not have dates or facts. Does that include the pronunciation of Galaga? Oh, absolutely. No, no, no. no. That's, <laughs> I, I can tell you that's not, that's not how we in, that, in the uh, development group that I was in at Midway at the time, we said Galaga. Okay. But what they said on the floor above us or down on the sales that's floor, true. you know. That's true. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna t- blow the lid off of some of the, you know, some of the deeper, darker parts of the arcade industry, the console industry, sixteen bit, the casino industry, anything you want to talk about. I've done a little bit of all of it. Oh over God, 35 I've got years. I've got I've got issues with the casino industry, but it's mostly with the rules on the table games. <laughs> in fact, I don't even go to the casino anymore because they obviously don't want my money. I got a great casino story, <laughs> oh, but not, not maybe not for maybe not in this podcast, but okay. a really great one. Uh, okay. By the way, before I say before we say anything, I just yeah. want to say, uh, by the way, no quarter. We got Brian on our show without insulting him first. <laughs> neener, neener, neener. We're gonna yeah. insult him now that you, we already got him. Oh, jeez. So, geez, so okay, let's, uh, let's. We got a whole mess of questions. Here. All righty, so, let's have at it. Um, first of all, what inspired you to get into animation, and what other animators do you admire? Animation was a uh, was not my first choice. I was always a cartoonist. I was always an artist. But because I was a cartoonist, I didn't think of myself as a real art- artist. There's air quotes going up there, guys, for those of you not watching the video. Beautiful, stunning <laughs> video setup you've got here, too. I love it. I'm glad I dressed. I'm surprised they, f- they, they yeah. uh, flew us all the way out to the Taj Mahal. I mean, I this, is, this is really quite nice with the marble. But uh, I, I was in high school... Uh, I was always a cartoonist, but I got into film. I was a filmmaker in high school, made a bunch of fun films in high school, went to college for film, found out the main difference between college, making films in college, 
and high school was uh, high school you get friends to come out they'll do anything and that you want them to do and act as ridiculous as you want and in college where it's costing so much more for every frame of 16 as opposed to super 8 you get left there in the lurch and it costs a ton of money so I fell back on animation because I had total control and then while in college I made some animated films that won international awards and I decided I was going to be an animator went out to New York I uh, went to a lot of well several different places including places like National Lampoon and stuff like that and every place I went said this stuff looks great you're a talented funny guy but you will have no trouble getting a job somewhere else yeah and uh, I was finally offered a job uh, at a company that was doing animation entry-level job and the the four-hour test of in-betweening had me ready to go home and shoot myself and I came back from that and just formed my own little advertising company and did you know newspaper ads and cartoon art for a couple of years and I answered an ad at the Bally Midway company uh, saying they wanted to sell our animator. So I thought, Bally Midway, they make pinballs. Oh, I know they want someone to paint back glasses because cell painting is backwards on mm -hmm. cells. Like, I went in there and they said, no, we're looking for a video game animator. And I just went, oh, well, that'll be really interesting because I'm a pen and ink animator and the industry was at the Pac-Man level at the time, mm -hmm. and it was all I could do just to hide my disappointment. And then I even said to the guy, I said, hey, this looks really fun, and, and you know, I'd be very flattered to get the job, but you know, you got to understand I have a successful advertising business, and I make like close to three, $400 a month doing that. So you're going to have to really step it up. And I got a call few weeks later I was at a wedding in New York and they called my mom had them call me there and offer me the job and they were kind of willing to pay me like a, re a real job and I remember you know thanking them and you know $14,000 a year what are you you know I just <laughs> suck it and just it's like and then I hung up the phone I thought I can't say no to this and I turned to one of my buddies and I kind of tried to make a joke out of it it's like well this is it childhood's over I've got a real job but I honestly choked up because I thought that's it, you know, college days, everything I've ever been doing, I've now got a real job. And boy, was I wrong. I, was, <laughs> I fell into the industry at the right time in the right place. And everything I got to do after that and pretty much for the last 30 some years has been new and fun and interesting every time I turn around. So that's how I got into animation, per se, as an animator. My first job, I was hired at Bally as an animator uh, first product I worked on was this of Tron. And you guys are going to have to stop me when I keep rambling like this, because I will just keep going and going and going. That's so. what we do. All right. We can always make several episodes out of That's it. true. So, well, I'm sure people yeah, find these stories interesting. Off, yeah. I know I was pretty, I was uh, very interested, but, uh, you know, first one's free. And then the, the <laughs> other animators that I like, I mean, I was a pen and ink guy, so my illustrators were Mad Magazine. My inspirations oh, yeah. were Mad Magazine, so... You know, uh, Mort Drucker and Jack Davis. Jack Davis. And, um, um, who's the guy that did the lighter side? That was. Um, yeah, I didn't care for him. Dave Bird. Uh, Dave Bird. Don like Martin. It. Don Martin was Don Martin was too loose. I was Mort Drucker. I was Jack Davis. Mm -hmm. I was um, Harvey Kurtzman. I, I like guys who who could reduce 
real people into funny characters that weren't... Don Martin was too loose for me, mm-hmm. and, and uh, Dave Berg was too tight. What about uh, Sergio Argonese? I loved his bits, and he, I, in hindsight, he was a great cartoonist. I love his stuff, especially... Uh, I love the, mar- the stuff he did in the margins. Right. He was, was a brilliant cartoonist, brilliant humorist. But as a cartoonist style, it wasn't anything I wanted to emulate uh, just because it was, you know, the size of That's my thumbnail. True. But then in terms of real animators, I, you know, grow, my age, growing up on Looney Tunes, uh, you know, Bugs Bunny was not realizing as a kid that they had been done for adults 20 years earlier. Mm-hmm. But that was my benchmark. Disney was too beautiful for me. I figured I could never do that. But uh, in terms of one single animator that I just thought captured everything, Chuck Jones. Chuck, Chuck Jones. Chuck oh, Jones, definitely. yeah. I mean, the he fact was a busy that, guy. He the, didn't just he, do the he did everything. He, he did, did everything uh, you he found did the out Doctor later. Seuss, Seuss specials. Didn't oh, he yes. do the Charlie Brown specials? Or no, not, no, not Charlie no. Brown, that but was, he did the uh, Grinch. That was Bill Melendez, wasn't it? Bill Melendez, yeah. yeah that was Bill Melendez. Uh, Chuck Jones, uh, to me, Chuck Jones did Tom and Jerry. He yep. did some... some. He big, did a great adaptation of the children's book, The Phantom Tollbooth. Never saw that. Never uh, saw it that. was it was one of those. It was like uh, part live action, part animated, and he did re- that. He was really brilliant with that. I remember reading that book when I was in grade school. Well, I think Chuck Jones amazing. epitomized is the Grinch, because he captured so much life and humor. And I mean, Karloff doing the voice made it made it wonderful too. Oh, but, you can't beat Karloff. But but Chuck Jones, when that Grinch, you know, gets that evil Grinchly thing, and the, that <laughs> smile true. just goes up and yeah. up and up, and the, I mean, that to me, he's my favorite animator. With, with, with Dis- Disney tried to animate like they, they tried to do like everything. They tried to do like every individual hair, and then like every little, maybe not necessarily that, but they went for they went more for detail where. You can't. There was a lot of detail in what Chuck Jones did, but it wasn't as busy as Disney. I think. I think the difference for me too. And again, I look at what a lot of things I love is stuff that I try to emulate, and I know. I know where I want to stop. And Disney, and not just Disney. A lot of. A lot of companies that even today produce animation, their idea is to recreate reality. Mm-hmm. And one of the beauties of animation that I think like Chuck Jones and, and of that era realized is you don't have to recreate reality. If the emotion is all we're talking about, it's the guy's face. The back wall can be a blue swatch and a mm-hmm. off lopsided polygon and it represents a window. That's all you need. You don't have to put everything, putting everything in there doesn't make it better or funnier. If the joke lands, the joke lands, and they use animation is about being able to pull that foot foot back, foot or fist back at an impossibly far, snap it forward impossibly fast. You know, I think you were mentioning Chuck Jones with and Tom and Jerry. That's kind of. I'm pretty sure he animated this one, but there was one I saw on the Tom and Jerry show, was about a line. Who wanted to have the dot, a, in, the the dot in the line? Who, yes. who had the wanted that a girlfriend? That was definitely Chuck Jones. Who wanted uh, who wanted the dot as his girlfriend? And he tried the line tried um, being a suitor to the dot, but the dot kept rebuffing him for a squiggle. And that that cartoon, even well, though there were no faces and it was totally abstract, and there was like very little in the way of background, it was pretty much just one color or another, mm-hmm. showed more emotion 
than most oh. things you could ever see. And there were no facial expressions. Animation. That's why I love animation, because as, as an artist, I can do... I mean, I've done all every type of animation, you know, whether it's stop motion, you know, my giant creature destroying a little city and in Super 8, you know, moving a frame at a time to cut out paper animation to cell animation. And depending on what the joke is and what you're trying to do, different things let you get there in a way that's fun. For me, almost anything I ever do, it's about finding a new way, a fun way of taking whatever the challenge is, the creative challenge, and making it fun for myself. I'm a very selfish guy in that respect. So that's where the fun is for me in video games. And making games is, you know, it's not just about, you know, ideas are a dime a dozen. Uh, but making something real in the time you're given with the constraints you've got. I, I don't like just thinking outside. I mean, a lot of people say you think outside the box. Thinking outside the box is fine. But I want to I push the limits of the box so that people who define the box didn't know it could do that. That's what I take joy in, you know? It's just like, oh yeah, no, no. Because thinking outside the box a lot of times leads to, well, the hardware won't do it, so the project gets abandoned. Or we gotta wait for this, we gotta wait for that. I'm also an impatient kind of guy. So I wanna get it done, and I wanna do the most I can with it. And I'm rambling again, so I'm gonna shut up. No, I actually, you actually, uh, I was just <laughs> looking. You covered and, like uh, three of our questions. Yeah, already. you covered a couple of questions. <laughs> okay, so. Right, and you were, something I just wanted to add here is that what you just said kind of sparked this in my mind. Um, I'm very into the Atari 2600, and okay. I have been since sure. 1982. And watching people come out with these homebrew games that are just amazing, and it just made me think, well, if you don't have a deadline, you could do anything you want with that machine. Would you say the same thing is true for like projects that you've worked on, like animation and things? Like If you don't have a deadline, do deadlines limit you as an animator? I'll put it to you that way. No. No, I see, and I think that's a huge misconception, and it is exactly the wrong way to look at it. For me, if I don't have a deadline, nothing's... The deadline is part of the joy of the... When I talk about creative challenge, that's part of it. Interesting. I've got to have this thing done by then. There are countless developers out there around the world, and I mean, and I worked with a lot of them over the years at different companies I worked at and everything else, is... They keep wanting to push the deadline back because they want to do more. Mm -hmm. And while that, it's possible, and yeah, you got the president's ear and he wants to let you push this project back another two months, you can add more and you can add more and you can add more. You're not necessarily making it better. And for me, the answer to your question is yes, you can, if you didn't have deadlines, you could do anything. And that, but for, for me, that's the worst thing you can have because I've made 90 games in 35 years. If I didn't have a deadline, I, I know people that would still be making their first. So true. And so the deadline's just part of the mix. And that's hardware limitations or audience. Hey, we, we want you to do this game. It's got to look like this, and it's got to look like this. But it's got to appeal to people that never play video games, and they're over 50. One of the best games I ever had, one of the best development experiences ever had and it ran for nine years at a convention designed but it was designed for an audience that was convention goers that don't play video games yet they would line up by the thousands to play this game on a stage every three years at con expo if you don't mind me asking what game was it the game was called the kamatsu challenge okay and uh it literally was a 
It was a racing game in which you were racing 40-ton pickups, the type with, you know, 12-foot wheels oh, and everything like that. Bigfoot. And the uh, they hired us to do it. And the challenge of the game was literally is their audience is not kids. It's all these, cons- you know, guys who work heavy construction and their right. wives at the, the convention. So we had to make it idiot-proof. So things that we put in the game, they're driving, their foot's on the gas pedal. But if it was an open course, so if they started driving over a hill or something or somewhere off the course, the game would gently pull them back onto the course as if the gravity of the hill was pulling them down. <laughs> we had to do so much in there to make it fun and idiot-proof that it's one of the, even though it's not, to look at it, I mean, it, it had their product line in there, and as the course would lead, you know, you would see all this other stuff that they needed in this as a marketing piece. But the best thing about it was the the convention was every three three years, and the second time we did it, we released a new version every time. Guys were there that would be had been there three years before, and it was the first booth they went to because they would sit there and play this game up on the stage, and it was it was a, a ton of fun. Nothing better than being at a place for a week, 10 days, watching thousands of people line up to pay, play your game on a stage. Oh, yeah. So, and you, you kind of touched on this a little bit with your with, uh, with what you were saying there as Sean holds the microphone closer to me. What is your opinion on the states of modern video gaming, arcade, console, what have you? I mean, you touched on it a little bit with, with, uh, with the, the whole thing on deadlines, which... I have an opinion on the whole deadline deadline thing. Deadlines are good, but you also have to watch out to not release a product that you're going to have to keep updating. Well, <laughs> they, they, again, the for me in entertainment, the for me it's about when I look at a new project, I got to know. You know, and again, to climb, I've been had my I worked from started out at Midway. Midway was then bought by Williams, so then it was Williams Valley Midway, and then a couple of years after that, I formed my own company with my partner Jeff Nauman, and and basically since then, anything that comes along, the client has their what they need, and I look at how long have I got, what do you want to spend? I can do anything. All right, bottom line is we can do anything. What do you got? How long? You know, so I need I need two two points of that triangle so that mm-hmm. the whole thing can be where it is. I I I worked for a while for the TouchTunes company. I did in eighteen months there. I did fourteen games in eighteen months with about five people on a team. So wow. we, but it, they were small games that. The concepts are simple. We, I know just how much we can do to do a two to three month turnaround for two to three people. And the beauty of that was all we had to do was to make the fun, small core game. And then because it was an online network system, it was TouchTunes, uh, the jukebox people, oh, we could okay. update them live anytime we wanted to. So in that case, the deadline was about getting that core game fun and out there that catches their attention. But we did, uh, we were able to say, okay, now we can add the whatever it is or the enhancement or the tuning a month later, a month later. So in that case, it kind of sounds like I'm going against what I was saying earlier about deadlines is I don't mind updates. Updates are great as long as you deliver what you need to deliver mm-hmm. at that first deadline. 
Mm-hmm. Um, none of which goes to your original question about what I think about today's concept. Well, I mean, we can get to that. I mean, there's there's a there's the famous uh, there's there's uh, you're talking about because you don't want to ship something broken because then your company's reputation's at right. stake. At stake, you know, capitalism. Yay, capitalism! Yep. As Austin Powers said. But um, but there's there's that one joke game that was a computer game that was released. It was Big Rigs. The game was so totally broken that you, your truck could infinitely accelerate backwards. You could get off of the play area. Uh, in the original version, the truck you're supposed to be racing just never raced. In the update, it raced you, but it stopped just short of the finish line, so you always won. And uh, you're always winner. You're win- yeah. And it was it was obviously a game made overseas because when you won, it's uh, it get- awarded you a trophy and it said you're winner. <laughs> and but the, the the thing I thought the funniest about it was whenever you would drive over a bridge, your truck always was uh, it, the it fell right through the bridge. Like okay. into the river bottom, and you could always accelerate full speed uphill and everything. It was totally broken product, and you do you don't want to. No, and well, that's what I mean. I, yeah. I like to say I I don't miss deadlines, so I like deadlines because they <laughs> they're part of what drives. Well, like, yeah, me. Yeah, they're part of what drives me. Obviously, I mean, I I got my start at a time when, like I say, we were very lucky at Midway in those early days, '82 that we as a group we were physically outside the factory we're in a little small office about as big as what we're in right here now and my office was a hallway with a desk in it and we got to try things and they gave us the ability to go in as whatever directions we did wanted to for the most part especially the first few years because nobody really knew you know, we were the creatives. We were allowed to. We, they gave us quite a bit of creative freedom at the early midway, um, but that also meant that out of nine projects going on, three, four would come out because they were good. Management at that point in those days was good about saying, "Okay, this is going nowhere. Pull the plug." Um, the trouble is, is, is can can come from. And it's not necessarily the trouble. Some of the best games you'll ever see involve someone saying, "No, no, give it more time. Mm-hmm. We got to, we got to get this to a point." Those can be very successful. Um, I don't have the patience for working on stuff like that. I mean, people ask me why I became a designer because ultimately that's what I am. I started as an animator, but I became a designer out of self-defense. I work. Being an animator, I was able to work on five, six different projects at once in the early days. And you've come to find out that uh, working on a project that's kind of thought out and where everybody knows where they're going and everyone's pulling in the same direction gets done, gets out there, makes money, and projects that are ill-defined or kind of, hey, let's try this, that didn't work, hey, let's try this, that didn't work, those aren't as much fun to work on and basically... I, I don't know who said this. I just heard this quote the other day. Designers are basically lazy people. <laughs> I want to do. I want to. I want to think about it. Put the put the work into the thought involved, so I don't have to redo things twelve mm-hmm. times. And I became a designer for just that reason. Is is no no. Let's think about this. Let's go in this direction. You're never going to have all the answers. You know, no battle survived. No uh, plan battle plan survives the first skirmish. But the more answers you've got, the more likely you are you're going to get something done. So, what do you think about gaming these days? <sighs> That's a whole different podcast. Um, whole- <laughs> it really is. I, 
I'll be the first to admit I'm not the... Um, I make video games because I like making games. I like making mm-hmm. entertainment. I pl- when I play games for fun, I play my games for the most part. <laughs> I play I play a few games that come out after they you know kind of seep into my consciousness or friends drag me to them. I mean, console games where they're at, the stuff that can be done now is incredible to me. The fact that you need a team of 300 people in four years and $10 million says, great, I'm glad you guys are doing these. I'm going to want to play this at some point. But if I can have the same fun with three buddies of mine on a land game that's yeah. 15 years old and it got done in by six guys or in, a, you know, in nine months... I'm glad you guys are doing that. I love to see what's out there, but you know, console games for the most part for me are, hey, that's fun to watch somebody to play. Mm-hmm. I'm, I can, I'll keep walking. Now there's a few I, I get sucked into and then I play for a while, but for the most part, and so I'm not really anybody to ask about the state of the industry because I don't really follow it. Same with arcade games. Yeah, sure, arcade game industry today is not something. It, only something that I've recently become aware of, you would think that as an old arcade guy, I would know, keep up with it. As a guy who formed his own company as, and gone, yeah, I'll still make arcade games for if you come and tap me on the shoulder and say, make me an arcade game, I make it. Uh, if you say I need a redemption game, you say I need a PC game, you say I need a specialty game for a marketing thing, promotional game or a mobile game or a betting game or a casino game. I'm a good game designer. I'm a lazy businessman. Whoever taps <laughs> me on the shoulder gets me next. So I only became aware that kind of this whole resurgence of the arcade industry, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's still a few good manufacturers out there doing stuff and they're doing great games or big games. But, you know, this whole resurgence and interest in the arcades, I only found out about about a year and a half ago, two years ago, when I was introduced to Doc mm-hmm. here at the Galloping Ghost. And uh, uh, Joe, my uh, mark, or my uh, social media guy at the time at Game Refuge, said, no, you got to meet this guy, see what they're doing with arcades. And since then, you know, I've discovered the communities and the interest and in what's going on and the fact that people are still making new original pieces, mm-hmm. but it's still new to me, and I'm loving it. But I, I'm not any kind of expert on what anybody's doing, or, or so I, I'm kind of dodging that question. Well, can I, I, I want to go back to what you said about how you play your own games when you want to play a game. When we're done here, I'm going next door and I'm playing some games. But if I walk in and Doc said, you know what, we're switching to a token policy or quarter policy. I have one quarter left. Which of your games should I go to? And I can't do one. I can do... <laughs> it's like asking him which of his children is his favorite. No, it kind of, actually, yeah, it is kind of. It really depends Especially on what because you Especially because he does have I a have favorite an there is an answer. There is an answer depending on you. So if you want to play white-knuckle, skill-based, it's all timing, it's all in the hand-eye coordination, and it's tuned exceptionally well, and it's going to get harder and harder and harder and harder. Classic old arcade stuff I would say go to the games that I worked on I designed a little bit but weren't really my games I just worked on them go play Spy Hunter Sit Down and or go play uh, uh, Dissatron uh, those games they get progressively harder they're done really well the complex controls of Disco- of Tron alone <laughs> make it you know you, you can't 
play it anywhere except an arcade. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh. Spy Hunter, getting in the zone, getting the Peter Gunn music pumping in your ears. You feel like a million bucks. So if you're in that kind of high-intensity, I can master something, I'd say play those games. Well, speaking of which, um, our friend Jason Latko uh, wanted to know, but did you have any, any uh, legal issues going like using that music for Peter Gunn? And- I know they used Peter Gunn because they couldn't reach an agreement with... Uh, with the uh, uh, James, James Bond, Bond. Yeah, 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 yeah. Eon okay. Studios. Yeah, whatever. They yeah. couldn't reach I'm an agreement. <laughs> but the but the Peter Gunn thing, I think, was turned out to be a wonderful choice because Neil Falconer wrote the the uh, at the time was extraordinary to me. I knew of nothing like it. He wrote it. That's basically composing jazz on the fly, hmm. based on the Peter Gunn theme. When you're in the truck. So that jazz is composed by software Neil wrote. So it's kind of random. Well, well random's with, a dirty word. I'm yeah, sorry. I don't, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't believe in random. But <laughs> it is never, it is, it is software that is creating it. Right. Creating so basically it. you're hearing something that has never been written before. Right. Gotcha. Every time you play. Every time you play. So, uh, yeah, Ball random would like be that. just noises and fart noises like and everything yeah, else. Yeah. Um, but the, in terms of, oh. i got to finish his question. No. He oh. asked it. You get, you get the full McGillan. Yeah, just sit here. Shut up. If you wanted to please please do tell. If you wanted a two-player game, pigskin. If you're with somebody, play pigskin. That's my favorite of my two-player games. Um uh and if you want mindless, I would say world tour, rampage world tour, or maybe Zwackery in terms of exploration, not what's going not. Does he have his Rampage World Tour? Red, red. He does doesn't it, have his Wacker. He doesn't have his Wacker because I've only s- played it in emulation. And oh, you can't like, play that in any. That's got the discs of Tron controls. You can't play Wacker in emulation. That probably explains it. You've got to find it. You've got to find it. And there, there was a guy a few years ago that was buying everyone in the country. I sold him mine, and I'm still kicking myself because he he had like seven of them, and I sold him mine, and I thought, well, I can always go back there and buy it back from him. But he's closed his uh, website down. I don't know where he is. Oh so, okay. As long as we're talking about, uh, brought up about uh, about the legal uh, legal thing with uh, with, uh, with with Spy Hunter and uh, music, and the music yeah. was. Did you was there any legal anything legally happened with Xenophobe with uh, the people that did the Alien films? No, not at all. No, uh, I mean. I mean, we, tried be, we tried to be. We tried to be. I think it was. It's pretty obvious to anybody who saw it that it was a parody. Okay. Of you know, it was very much a parody. Sure. That I had one one character in my, all of my bad pun named characters that was that had you know a tight t shirt on woman that with a tight t shirt and brunette hair. But apart from that, there was really nothing about xenophobe that I think the people from Alien could point to or aliens. You know what's funny is because in the original uh, imagining of uh, of Alien, the the alien was supposed to take on traits of the different. Creatures that it would like Got go it. nest inside of. I'm thinking now what you're saying here. I'm like, so did the alien get inside a duck? That would be cool. <laughs> maybe, maybe I love Doctor Quack. I'm maybe sorry. when we revisit that, you know, maybe we maybe we'll do a, a, a new xenophobe someday. That would be a fun way to go. I'll give you credit for that one. <laughs> okay, Rampage. So the cities in Rampage. Did you decide the, yes. what cities in the order that they were put in? Yes. Is it, I actually played it on Mame. Couple of weeks ago, with uh, all of the cheats enabled, so I could see like the order of the cities and what they were, and I'm like, 
you don't really follow a set order, except like when you're in the Chicago area. Then we go. started. We started in Peoria just because the old because I come from a film background. Will it play in Peoria? So we started oh, in Peoria. That's uh, fascinating. Yeah, and then uh, moved up here, and of course. Uh, the programmer I... Uh, oh, thank you for destroying Joliet, by the way. That's, sure. That's and where we had I had to move born. up to Chicago, so... Uh, and and my, my... The programmer was from uh, Plano, and I was from Homewood, and uh, so... Oh, okay. I was thinking you were from Plano. No, that's Jeff. Jeff that's Nauman. Jeff. Okay. Uh, and we'll, we'll have to talk more about Jeff later, because basically uh, many... If not most of my best games were done with Jeff as a, okay, as so, a programmer. And so he's your co-designer to your Lennon, basically. Lennon McCartney is uh, is a is an appropriate because uh, th- we did blur. He's one of these guys that you know. Uh, before you told me we were actually recording, and I said this some he's your Bernie horrible to your Elton John. He was. <laughs> he. Uh, I said some things that some programmers might take offense to. He is well, the exception that proves the world. He's an incredible game designer, uh, and a very creative guy, and a very, very uh, stick-to-itive guy. We kind of gravitated together in the early Midway days. We did. Uh, we worked on some of the same projects, but we both kind of gravitated together because we both felt that. Like I talked about earlier, game design being avoiding being lazy. I don't want to do this twice. Let's think about it. So we we did games together when we realized that we both liked not just trying things at random. Rampage was uh, a lot of people wonder about the inspiration, the inspiration of Rampage, and oddly enough, Rampage. The inspiration from Rampage was. Uh, Trade the, the hardware limitations at the time. We came back from a trade show, and I saw some games out there like Ghosts and Goblins around at that time, or one of the predecessors of that, with scrolling hardware or very big background characters that move. And the Bally Midway hardware, Midway hardware at that time, had only like one and a half pages of background blocks uh, that were low resolution, and I don't I don't know how many, but a few dozen higher resolution foreground blocks and foreground sprites and I said you know why can't we do that why can't we animate the background you know Mm -hmm. I know we haven't got much but why can't we animate the background no no animation has to be on these rectangular shapes and all we could do is move rectangles around and I had been toying with why can't we have bigger characters combine multiple sprites into larger characters so in that meeting where we were kind of discussing the show, myself and one of the art, other artists, Sharon, I said, so we do a Godzilla, King Kong Godzilla movie. I said, because a building crashing down into itself is moving along the rectangle borders of the background. We can cover up where it's collapsing on itself with little smoke clouds, and I can do giant characters that are knocking down these buildings. And I got excited about it, unfortunately. The programmer who was in the meeting was Jeff Nauman at the time. The sound guy was Mike Bartlow. We all got very excited about it. I went out, I wrote it up, took it to the manager of the department, and said, you know, we all want to do this. And he said, no. Uh, I got another project for Jeff, and I got this for we're doing here. So I said, okay, fine. And I waited about a day and went over the manager's head to the head of the engineering department and said, look, I got this. Isn't that great? Won't you? Oh, that looks wonderful. That one. No. (laughs) Sales says, we can't sell anything. There's nothing like this. We can't sell anything. And so I continue to work on on just the animation of George, uh, the ape, on my own. But 
And then we got a new president, like within weeks of this, we got a new president who came over to run the new Bally Midway, and his name was Maury Furchin. He came from Montgomery Wards, of all places. And in his initial uh, meeting with the company, he said, you know, and I have an open-door policy, so if any of you ever want to come to me about anything, come on in. I was there the next morning knocking on his door. He loved the idea, and... uh, that's how we got to do Rampage. Oh, nice. And they basically said, you know, we can't do it. And I I just, the document, I mean, it was a little presumptuous. It was a, just a little two-page document with my drawings on it. But it said, this is why this is next year's number one game. Is I wrote that as on the top of the game design document because nice. to me, there was no way that couldn't be fun. And uh, and the the heroes of that game were bigger than anything anybody was seeing. And then as a cartoonist, mm-hmm. I was finally able to the character was big enough that you could read the expressions on their faces. So <laughs> I was finally able to do the comedy. I love those expressions. Thank <laughs> you, thank you. I loved making them. I had a ball. That for me, that's what it was all about. Was that bringing that comedy to the player, and especially in the first rampage, I think that's what made it. Succeed. See, I, I guess that, that's probably why Rampage and like Arch Rivals are probably <laughs> a, among the only couple of games that exist where I don't mind using the continue options. It's like, oh, I got to see more of this. I want to see what happens next. You know? so I never, pl- I've never played Arch Rivals or Pigskin because I'm just not a huge sports fan. I am and not a sports fan either. We had done uh, Rampage and and had a couple other. Uh, I did Rampage with Jeff Nauman, then I did Xenophobe with. Um, Howard Shear, another three-player game. We had a couple, a few successful runs in a row, and so they were kind of letting us do what we wanted to do. And Jeff was taking a plane trip back from some convention, and on the trip, one of the things early games that Jeff and I did together was uh, after demo derby, demolition derby, which was a four-player car demolition derby. We did a two-player head-to-head game called Sarge in which mm-hmm. you could jump from your helicopter and run over and get in your tank. And I had always... One of the first games I worked on uh, at Bally that didn't get released um, because it was only a two-player game was a game called Ant Raid in which you you sent out an army of ants to gra- get, grab as much food from a dump and the idea of controlling multiple players was something I always kept trying to bring back into my games. And we did it with Sarge and had a little bit of success. Uh, the one player controlling multiple players. And Jeff came back from this uh, flight and said, I came up with a game, basketball game, using multiple characters, which he knew I loved. And it's like, and we can finally do basketball strategies. Jeff was a sports guy. Mm-hmm. As guys who you know worked together for 20 well, 30 years now, um, were very different people. He was a sports guy. I was the antithesis of sports. But he said, you know, now we can we can do a game, a basketball game, where it's not just arbitrary. The programmer says you got to do this, 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 and this to get the thing in the, in the hoop. Right. It can be about basketball strategies, getting in the way of the people blocking, you know, pick and roll, and all these other expressions. I didn't even know what they meant. <laughs> I'd nod like an idiot. Yeah, we can do pick and roll. Yeah, we can do pick and roll. Okay. I had no idea. But as we talked about it, I said, okay, if we're doing a sports game, the only thing you got to do for me, I want to be able to foul. Mm. So the Thank punching, you for that. <laughs> the punching was my uh, 
was my major contribution <laughs> arch, arch rivals. But the fact that it was set up as a, I'm controlling multiple people. Well, the fact that it was set up to take advantage of the fact that you can control multiple characters and call for a pass or throw a pass or tell the other player to shoot. The fact that it was a real basketball strategy, that was Jeff Nauman's concept. Hmm. So he needs full credit for that. And there's something I, I just realized last night. Are you familiar with um, an Atari home console game? It was that on the, the 7800 and the Atari Lynx? It was called Basket Brawl. No. Okay. No, I am not. Wow. Sorry. No. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm thinking, that, wait a minute. This sounds we a little bit too dangerous. We the phrase basket brawl. I mean, in the, exactly. I mean, I did a, by that time, I was doing all the cabinet art for our games. Uh, Rampage was the first game. They let me do all the cabinet art as well. Mm. Uh, and then they were nice enough to let me start doing it on the rest of my games. But, yeah, we... we th- well, we I thought I coined the phrase basket brawl when we came out with our rivals, but I maybe it was predated by the I think the Atari thing came out in ninety two, which is why I'm like Oh no, then they stole it from us. Exactly. I've never money. played that one. Yeah. The early midway days, the early midway group, it was all kind of everybody pulling for everybody else. Everybody would walk into everybody else's cubicle and give advice and it was very free and very open which is not always the case at at other places i've worked but we liked head-to-head games uh jeff and i in particular liked head-to-head games so anything we played you know little secret they're easier to design because the players are bringing their own fun you've still got to make the single game single player game challenging sure but you want to invite that buy-in anytime especially you know, people don't understand this so much today because they play it, you know, they play home versions or whatever. And back when we designed these games, it was all about getting that next quarter. My games were designed to make you laugh when you died or to make you scream, mm-hmm. oh no, and pull out that next quarter. Uh, I think uh, we were talking uh, prior to the uh, recording this, and you mentioned the continue in our rivals is one of the games you will always continue. That was the brilliance of my partner on that game, Jeff <laughs> Nauman, because whether you realize it or not, that was the first game in which, okay, whether or not the thing's going into the basket is a, is a random number based on a number, not random, but on a <laughs> table. Random is a dangerous word. Random is a dirty word, but it's a table Improvise. based on everything that's going on currently in the game, who's winning, who's losing. Uh, there is a random element to it, but it, is, it isn't it is a table-driven thing. But that thing's going to the basket, and you know what? The game timed out 10 seconds ago, 15 seconds ago. We didn't stop the game and ask for another quarter until the ball was in the air <laughs> on the way to the basket, and then we stopped That's the game. That's exactly what said, got me. And then said, hey, it's timed out. So if you're paying attention, that timeout will go sometimes five seconds. 10 seconds before that next time that ball goes to the basket get basket I remember playing that game at the Aladdin's Castle at Louis Joliet Mall and I was (laughs) it's it's pronounced Louis shut up (laughs) Mr. Malaga and Marseille and I was like oh my god I need another token I need another token I gotta run over to the token that was brilliant that was Jeff's when he came up with that we just grinned from ear to ear because the thing about that is you can't resist yeah it's you can't resist it's the suspense is it and it's the fact that you know I played I played basketball when I was in grade school it's like I gotta see all four quarters of the game and you know it brings up another point (laughs) because you know we're Sean is more is less likely to continue on a game than I am, and it all boils down to the fact: is the continue worth it? It's uh, 
Excellent. Is point. the is the entertainment worth it? Uh, I asked my dad, why do you go to the casino all the time? And he's like, because it's it's entertainment. And he told me that what he spends at the casino is worth the entertainment he gets. Mm-hmm. And well, I think that's what a lot of people lose sight of, or I don't even know if it's lose sight of because there is no right or wrong. For me, what I do is creating entertainment for people and. The fact that I could turn that entertainment into sucking the next quarter out because I, I mean, it's a cardinal rule, especially in the old days, you know, make sure the player believes, feels in his heart that it was his (laughs) mistake, not the game. Game can kill you anytime it wants to. But if you believe it was your mistake, you're going to try and do better i.e. get that next quarter, which was paying our salaries or paying, you know, paying the the company, which who in turn paid our salaries. You're welcome, by the way. Yeah, and, and thank you for every one of them. They, 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 uh, On Narc Developer Night, I told Eugene Jarvis, you know, you owe me a lot of quarters that I lost in Robotron. The, uh, <laughs> he said, the, well, I already spent them. Yeah, the, the, uh, oh, what? there's our Robotron mention for this. Oh, yes, this week in Robotron. <laughs> We talk about Robotron so much without actually talking about the game. We put in a new segment called This Week in Robotron. <laughs> well, yeah. The, 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 the arcade world was very special. I mean, designing for the arcade meant you did. You had to get that next quarter. So for me, the answer was easy. Make them laugh. Uh, whether it's, you know, punching the guys in Arch Rivals, whether, you know, and then, and psychological. I mean, that hanging that ball in there, just find out whether it's going to go in well, or not. It, in it's Arch all Rivals. about the fun, the, the fun factor. Not Rampage, they turn naked. Yep. Yep. You know, we got and in trouble I, for that. Oh, we absolutely love. Four pixels across. Okay, to, any of you me. who gave Brian a hard time over that, bite me. No, no, no. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you all, because there's no such thing as bad publicity. But the fact that... The fact that we got in trouble for it meant people were noticing it. The fact that we, again, a lot of this stuff was easier to break new ground back then because it was earlier, you know. But yeah. this was 83, 84 when we were doing Rampage. And, and the fact that we said, hey, there's multiple players here. So they may be playing cooperatively. They, there should be no wrong way to play a game. And that's still the way I believe today. But that guy's going off the screen. Why can't I eat him? The fact I that one that. player could eat another <laughs> that, player, I do love that. which, again, psychologically had that first player digging in his pocket as fast as he could so he wouldn't get eaten by the guy that just killed him. or or, or it, it was, you play these little psychological games, and for me, the fun of video games is coming up with this stuff to try out on the players to see if I can get them to suck in just whether it's a home game and you want him to play just one more level or it's an arcade game and you want him to pull and put in one more quarter all of this of the creation of these little bits and pieces that hopefully entertain and at the a deeper level get you the money or the replay or the time that makes everybody end up enjoying it that's what it's about for me and you know you uh, you're you're bringing in, uh, brought something up there about you know being able to eat the, the other person in rampage were Rampage and Xenophobe really designed to be multiplayer from the beginning? Um, I ask, Rampage, I like Rampage. I don't like it when I'm playing by myself. I like it when I have other people playing there with me. The same thing with Xenophobe. Exactly as designed. Remember, we were making arcade games. We were making something that this game is getting played constantly 
by one person or people taking turns, it can only make so much. There's so many hours in the day. Jeff and I, well, not just Jeff and I, but uh, that's what we lean toward. If we've got games that multiple players can play at once, uh, Demo Derby, Sarge, a uh, number of games that we did over the years, but games that multiple, we're doubling our earnings. Therefore, the operators are going to want those games. These Rampage went to three players almost from the beginning. Uh, we said, hey, we can squeeze one. In those early days, too, we got to decide how the track, how the uh, joysticks, what kind of joysticks we had available, where the buttons were placed. Do we only do it for right-handed players, or do we accommodate people from both sides? Uh, you know, or, you know. Uh, we got to play with a lot of that stuff. The the ergonomics of the cabinet and rampage. We can fit three people in here if we just push this uh, control panel out a little bit and shape it this way. So that, and then Xenophobe, after the success of Rampage, there was no way Xenophobe was not going to be a three-player because it was following on the heels of Rampage. And actually, we have a question here from uh, a listener. Uh, Save 2600 on Atari Age asked, why was Xenophobe designed for three players instead of the usual two, especially because some depth on the screen by necessity was sacrificed? Xenophobe, a couple of reasons for that. Um, Again, talking about... Uh, actually, I haven't mentioned this yet. You know how you scroll back and forth in mm-hmm. uh, in our tribals? We didn't have scrolling hardware. That's all faked. Wow. I drew all that in such a way that it was completely faked. Those people, there are no there are no struts on the bleachers because those bleachers aren't moving. The little people are sliding back and forth to make you think that it's moving. <laughs> the only thing that was redrawn eight times because there's eight pixels in a background block is the actual you know uh, uh, free throw line and that stuff everything else is fake there's no scrolling coming up with that innovation on a hard, non-hardware scrolling was a was the result of doing it in a limited way in sarge when we would scroll on an entire screen at a time which in turn and then that was scrolling down the buildings into themselves in rampage the fact that we were doing things that couldn't be done is part of what would make us grin about making games. Xenophobe was three-player, as I mentioned, because of the earnings. Rampage you know, earned triple what other games were earning because we could get three people on it. And Xenophobe, we were scrolling these little windows that if they were bigger, if you'll ever play Xenophobe in the arcade, you'll notice they never scroll at the same time. Even if you're all walking out together, they are kind of staggered. I have noticed that. Because the hardware couldn't handle that much movement at once. So I have noticed that. That both allowed us huh. to have three players and it kept us from overtaxing the hard this non-scrolling wow. hardware. So yeah, good question. So yes, the short answer was yes. <laughs> it was uh, designed to be three players from the start and uh, that's why. So, um, let me see. Um... One uh, last for uh, for Rampage here, uh, specifically. Um, you obviously love you know, some of the monster movies from the 40s, 50s, that sort of thing. Is there any big monster in movies like that, is, that you would consider a favorite? Or do you like them all? <laughs> I, I was the... Uh, uh, monster movies, I was a universal... Frankenstein, James White, you know, the, all of the all of the classic universals were my fodder. As a kid, I was terrified of monster movies. I was, you know, little 
uh, you know, I didn't actually, not until Famous Monsters of Filmland mm -hmm. came along did I immerse myself in that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, that's the thing. A lot of people, you know, wonder, you know, uh, the press on Rampage or and just people in general kind of played up the fact that you were the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And that was absolutely never my intent, and I still don't feel it today. At worst, you were an anti-hero. Mm -hmm. But you were basically, if you read those I, scroll I up stuff and the story that goes on in the in the you're in a the victim, and all you're doing, you can literally you're play rampage, an only does. looking for food. You don't have to eat people, uh -huh. and you're defending yourself from the guns. You it can is, run from them. You don't have to. You play it the way you want to play it, and those characters are the victims. They're the heroes. They're you know, again, anti-heroes now. Is that kind of why they're they're actually like mutated humans? Like, exactly. At wow. the start of that, at the start of Rampage, the first one, and then even more so in World Tour, where we really go over the top to talk about the evil Scum Labs Corporation. By the way, thank you for destroying Kankakee. That's oh, where I was pleasure. born, and I actually lived there for a short time. And I actually pleasure. took a screenshot of that using my Windows desktop I'm, for a long time. It's so nice to see that phrase. Kankakee has been destroyed. I like Kankakee better than you, even though it was rated the worst city to live in. in <sighs> oh, I love Kankakee. I love. Well, actually, I love Bourbon A. I should say rather. All right, but anyway, there's some. Yeah, no, okay. We're good there too. You guys have a high tolerance level, and I admire you both for it. I was born and grew up in Joliet. I love the Midwest. I love the fact that we have seasons. I love the fact that being here near Chicago, I can go anywhere in the country, you know, and and come back here and still get, you know, winter most winters, not this one. We we have our heat. We have our autumn. You know, we get. I'm not crazy about spring, but what are you gonna do? Oh gosh! Don't even get me started. Yeah. Well, we know that. Okay, that what the the Atari seventy eight hundred versions of Xenophobe and uh, Rampage. That's not your artwork they used. So. Right. I yeah, I had yeah. basically nothing to do with any, um, of the home any of the home stuff adaptations. Sure. What about the Rampage series that was uh, home console only after uh, the arcades closed down? Did oh, if only if only you people I, could see I the look in his face. Earlier, I'm a I'm a brilliant businessman. Have I? <laughs> uh, perhaps I haven't mentioned that because it's the farthest thing from the truth. When we did um, after after we left and formed our own company, uh, Ken Fidesna and the nice guys at uh, what is now the new Williams Valley Midway or then just Midway asked us, you know, when we were going to come back and do games. And we and we were in talking to them and they wanted something for a specific audience. And Jeff and I looked at each other and said, "Let's redo Rampage." So ten years later, we did Rampage World Tour. And after that, a few years later, they, um, they were bought in headquarters for Midway, moved out to California. They did the home version of Rampage, which was actually done by a programmer on the airplane on trips between. Huh. The entire port was done on the airplane oh, wow. on his four or five hour trips between uh, L.A. and Chicago. But... I digress. Anyway, after that, they came to us and said, we want you to do now a third Rampage game for the home, for the PC, or for consoles. And I said, great. I had already put together and designed a 3D Rampage in which the characters started from the where they started at the end of Rampage World Tour, which is about three inches high 
bouncing around on the ample bosom of the <laughs> astronaut who was up there in space with him. Return to Earth that big, break out of scum labs again, grow huge and start all over again, but follow them. The whole game was from a, for a first person view of you and your buddies to be played oh. as a multiplayer game. I had mock-ups, you know, picking up tanks, using them as guns, that type of thing. First, oh, they said, and I actually sunk some time into this whole presentation, and, and Midway said, well, that's great, but we just want you to do the old game exactly as before mm-hmm. and add some new characters. And I said, well, you know, if that's what you want to do, we've done that twice already. Go find somebody else. Now, insert, you know kicking myself ever since because uh, we should have stayed involved with that franchise but at the time right. we were busy and really I wanted to do I wanted to push that to somewhere else but plenty of people have got they've done quite a few versions of it but the only two versions I did that were my game were Rampage and World Tour mm-hmm. you know if you ever get around to doing another version of Rampage if they contact you for whatever reason I'd like to see the amazing colossal man and the 50 foot woman uh, mm. uh, you know, be in the game. <laughs> Actually, that would be that'd be more likely because I could probably get those licenses. Uh, Time Warner has Rampage, and they're not letting it go anytime soon. Oh boy, there you go. And I that's think, a trouble. I th- and I think a couple of those might be public domain at this point because they did nope. them on Mystery Science Theater. Uh, oh yeah, the movies. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I, I don't know if they're public domain. Domain, domain but, I bet but we could get them cheap. Yeah, mm. most okay. likely. But. If there's anything, if there's something you could change about your games, what would it be? And were there any game ideas that you have not yet been able to accomplish for one reason or another? Okay. Um, <laughs> anything I could change. Uh, every time you do a game, every time you do a game, you learn things. Uh, learn things for learn things. Again, air quotes here. Learn yeah. things equals mistakes. Hindsight so, twenty twenty. Yeah, hindsight twenty twenty. Uh, we tried some wonderful marketing stuff with Rampage, and then we extended that in, uh, in Arch Rivals. We did some marketing stuff uh, designed for the operators. And, and with Pigskin, I, about a week before the game went into production, I asked Jeff to put in a, hey, if you buy the whole game in advance, it costs you two less tokens to play the entire four-quarter game, four-period game. So instead of it costing you, you know, whatever, nine credits you could play for six. So we did and, and went out there. Earnings were great on Pigskin. For those that don't know, Pigskin is arch rivals, except uh, it's rugby with torches and swords and you can decapitate people and all that. Okay, kind of I'm going to have to So it's like that. real rugby. It's a, yeah, <laughs> real rugby. And it did real well and then earning a drop off at a location. Then it'd do great the next week and then earnings would drop off. And we were kind of wondering about that and uh, come to find out about eight weeks after the game had been released that there was a bug that if someone bought in at the right time to a one player game, a second player bought in and paid for a full game, the game would play for free until it was turned off again. Oh, oh, wow. So, you know, you learn these lessons like, you know, okay, there's a reason you have six weeks of testing and don't put anything in the week before you said that. So there's all kinds of things over the years that, you know, those types of things, if I could change, I would. And but you, generally speaking, I'm pretty happy with most of my games. And one, and one thing that, that, that I've been been thinking about this whole discussion, because you talk a lot about earnings in the business and, and, and all of that, and people get like, oh, you know, the continues and the buy-ins and all this. It's a business, first and foremost. 
And the, and the object, to, the, ob, the basics of economics is that you have to have somebody or something that somebody wants, and then they will pay you for it. And that's, I mean, pe people might get upset that you talk about all this, but this is the reality. This is. Well, it's also part of what I, you know, when I say design challenge, people think I'm just throwing out a, a, a trite phrase or something, but. Arcade designers, which is where I came from, uh, we understand something that most video game designers, I think, never had to deal with, is that in a very real, immediate way, we had two customers. We had the kid putting money in the machine mm -hmm. who wanted to live forever, and we had to make him happy on a quarter. I want to live forever, and I want to be challenged, mm -hmm. and I want to get better, and I want to live forever. And we had the guy who's buying the machine for $3,000 and putting it in his location who wanted that kid off in 45 seconds or less. Mm. And we had to make them both happy. And so anything else we did, and bottom line is we were doing this, we were making ourselves laugh, we were having fun with the skill of the game and everything the game could do. But in the back of the mind of every good arcade designer, was we have to make both those people happy. The game can't be, well, especially back then, it can't be a $10,000 game or mm -hmm. take you know, X number of years because the guys on the factory floor are going to get laid off if that doesn't get done on time. Right. You know, this, we got to have a product that's got to come in for a price uh, so, to make, so I can sell it to the operator. At the same time, that kid's got to believe I can play forever, and if I don't, it's my fault. So having those two audiences that you both had to make happy just made it made for a richer creation experience which is you know where i have my fun you can you guys are looking at me like i'm crazy but you can tell by the idiot grin on my face well we're all this is where i have my fun is is <laughs> making these things we're not looking at you like you're crazy we're looking at you like your family <laughs> which is the same thing pretty much. Oh, yeah. that's, that's pretty much crazy the is the normal in this group oh yeah and in terms of things i've never been able to do um, I've been really lucky. I game ideas are easy. There, there's a million games I'd love to do if somebody wanted to come up and pay me to do them. Uh, mm -hmm. My business model over the last 35 years has been pretty simple: pay me and I'll do a game for you. As a result, for most of my games, somebody else owns the rights. Mm -hmm. So, but I, I make a good, nice living making games. So I'm having fun. They're they're making money. Everybody's happy. Games, there is one project that um, I would really love to revisit, kind of in the same way we revisited Rampage with Rampage World Tour. The first game I ever did as an independent company was a Sega 16-bit game called General Chaos. EA, we, we left Midway, we went out to California based on just a couple of phone conversations, no documents in place, and we went there and pitched them this game, sight unseen, they said, great. Actually, EA asked us to form our own company so we could do a oh, game wow. for them. It was very flattering and very nice. And that game was the number one original game for Sega that year that it was released. And while it was an oddball game, you, you controlled a squad of soldier, soldiers and it all took place very limited in terms of resources. I'd love to redo that game. Uh, we've, we actually started on it. We, uh, we tried to do a Kickstarter and didn't quite make our, our goal. So it's about halfway there, and I've still got hopes that we're going to finish it because uh, we're now... T in those days, you had to use a joystick and mm -hmm. buttons to 
move your cursor around to place your guys and, and that kind of thing. Whereas today, this would make such an awesome touchscreen oh, yeah. multiplayer. Oh, there's so many options and control this day, especially yeah, with Nintendo. But so. yeah, we, we broke a lot of new ground with, again, controlling squads uh, back when we, we shouldn't have even been trying it. And the fans for that game have been in. I get more emails for General Chaos than I do about Rampage. Oh, you know, wow. Oh, yeah. I get more... Uh, well, probably because there have been Rampage sequels made. That's but, true. But uh, I get more requests for that. So in terms of if there was something I wanted to do that I haven't, that's about halfway there, and I want to finish that. Going the opposite direction of yeah. the projects that you actually did work on, that you actually did do, whether it be gaming or outside of gaming, what are you most proud of? <sighs> that's another... That's like your, what are you going to spend this quarter on when I go next door? <laughs> It depends on what you're talking about. I mean, in terms of just, hey, the number of smiles I've made on people's faces, I'd have to say I'm most proud of Rampage because that's the one that most people say, yeah, I played that. In terms of innovation and, hey, I pushed this farther than anybody thought I could and look, it made money. You know, General Chaos, not, totally not for everybody, but the fans that love that game love it for you know, maybe just because I appeal to whatever twisted thing. A lot of my games, I don't know that there's anything I'm proudest of. It would really be have to be in context of... So Rampage is a short answer. Uh, Rampage is a short answer. Sure. But almost all my games, there was something about them that I'm, I can be proud of the fact that I did this here where nobody else had ever done that before. I mean, that's the best I can say there. We got uh, three listener questions left, and uh, then we'll then we'll uh, we'll wrap it up, um, and we'll talk about what you've got going on with uh, with Game Refuge, and uh, actually you got a couple of prototypes out there too that uh, we have we haven't. That's even where I thought you were going to go with that last one, and and I've made some serious serious stinkers too. So you learn from <laughs> you learn from everything. How do you feel about Tyrone from Arch Rivals being used in the show Video Power? Courtesy oh, of Tim was, Evans. That was, our, that was a total hoot. It, yeah, no, we got we got very excited about it. Tyrone is one of the characters in Arch Rivals. So I've, I've never heard of Video Power. I don't know what that is. And it was it was a animated series lasted probably a half a season. I don't know, but uh, and they took characters from a random bunch of video games. And, oh, okay. And Tyrone from Arch Rivals was in it. We got all excited. It's like, hey, yeah, we made the big time. We're we're animated. <laughs> uh, and I I. To be honest, I don't know that I ever actually saw it, but it, yeah, we, we got very excited when we heard that. We'll have to look and see. There's got to be a clip of it on YouTube somewhere. In your experience, who? this is from Matt Burke. Hi, Matt. Uh, in your experience, who decides how difficult a game should be and what influences the decision? Um, I'll do the second half of that first. Uh, the design of the game is the influence for the decision. Um, so whether you working as a single designer or everybody's contributing to the design the design of the game is first of all where the you know how difficult it is and that's a that's a there's a big spread on even how you would interpret difficult um i would some people you know a, a design a game design can be too convoluted and too hard to understand is that what you mean by difficult i mean i've worked on something like that from time to time um and contributed poorly to the, the amount of difficulty. Uh, on the other hand, difficulty can be, hey, I've got to do this exactly this way or it isn't going to work. 
somebody could say that's difficult. And in both of those cases, I would say that's difficult, but that's bad game design. <laughs> so the designer takes the heat there. In, in terms of how difficult a game should be, the correct answer is it should be as difficult as the person playing it needs it to be at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that's not a. That's exactly <laughs> true. And that is, that is. I will hand credit. Uh, credit goes to a good, good design team. Good design, but really the programmer, the person involved, responsible for tuning the game, mm-hmm. especially back in the arcade games, which was the programmer. If if the, you had a programmer willing to spend the hours to tune, to tweak, to Ooh, adjust that game. He's the one directly responsible. The programmer is now in other types of games. It's it, it's a you know can be producers' responsibility or the designers or a collaboration. But a game that games like Arch Rivals, like Pigskin, uh, uh, that see how you're playing, and people are going to hate me for this, and they'll say, "Oh, you shouldn't do that." Cheat for you if you're not doing very well, or challenge you more if you're doing well, and then make, make it so that everybody playing is always feeling like, I can do a little bit better, I can get a little bit farther, but you want the challenge to always be there. So the right amount of difficulty, if, if the word difficulty and challenge are equal, there should always be, you should always feel challenged by a game and it should never be so difficult that you give up, mm-hmm. okay? And the person who is responsible, like I say, in the old days, it was probably more the programmer. And in this case, I'm speaking specifically of uh, Jeff Nauman, who I did, you know, Rampage with, and uh, and uh, Arch Rivals, and Pigskin, and uh, so guy like him, that's the kind of programmer you want that is going to put in the the effort to make sure the game is tuned. A uh, guy like Manny Najera, who did Arctic Stud with? Uh, there, there's a lot. I've worked with a lot of good programmers over the years. But uh. Uh, for the last of our uh, listener questions, uh, this is from uh, Tim and Andy from the Super Podcast Brothers podcast. And this was actually something me and Sean were wondering about too, because you're in the White Castle Hall of Fame. Yes, <laughs> we got. Uh, is the Tell us. is the 2005 White Castle Hall of Fame inductee plaque hanging proudly on your living room wall, displayed inside a bulletproof glass case on his office desk, or locked up in a vault for safe keys- keeping? And also, how does one qualify for induction into the White Castle Hall of Fame? Asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how he has it on here. With there the, you the, go. The three. Um, that was that, and actually, it has been hanging on our office wall, and it is current at all times, and/or in a display case. I love that. Uh, my wife actually teared up when we were there, <laughs> and they presented they presented me with that uh, that plaque. And the tears were not from the indigestion. Uh, no, it was, it was, it was fun. They, you know, they flew. They, it was a trip out there, and oh, nice hotel stay, and the whole nine yards, but. It was actually the result of um, we were doing a game in which uh, which uh, I told the guys we were testing the parameters of a uh, game engine, you know, long before Unity. Long, be- you know, it was like I think it was a torque game engine way back in the day. And I said, okay, in terms of what this can do, let's create some uh, um, recognizable 
locations that we can you know that we can see how well they they turn out in the game. And I'm thinking Eiffel Tower or the Taj Mahal. Uh-huh. And the one animator created modeler created uh, did a White Castle. <laughs> and so the programmer. Uh, took a character from another game and we ran this little green goblin in circ we created little floating white castle sliders floating around the <laughs> building and you ran around and collected them and we basically were doing that just to see what what the engine could do just with our projects. models and stuff and one of the guys uh, we had a white castle near the office and one of the guys uh, said we should you know they've got this Cravers Hall of Fame so I sent in a video of the the little goblin running around picking up these sliders and uh, and they liked it and next thing I know the three of us are were sent out to be inductees in the White Castle Hall of Fame. Did they uh, because you, you did this? Did they did they uh, like ever ever ask you to like do something for them after that or the game that that eventually became? And I think I mentioned earlier that normally we I only do games where somebody taps us on the shoulder. Uh, I did a we did a land game once uh, that was the only game I think I've ever done in 35 years that we just kind of did on our own in our spare time, um, and it was a. It was basically gambling, guns, and gasoline. It was a full content, full contact poker with guided missile on guided missile snowmobiles. Um, oh, dude, that's awesome! In a Cthulhu-based world, <laughs> okay. of eternal winter. Okay, I'm here. And white castles, white castles appear in the game, and they actually in the box set you got white castle coupons. Because oh, nice. I am so hearing stereotypical video game nerds pass out all over the country right now. Okay, I got it. What is, is where The name of the game, you can get it for free. You can get it for free right now. The name of the game is Arctic Stud Poker Run. Arctic Stud Poker Run. And if if there's anybody still playing land games out there, that I mean, it's a, it is hysterical. It is one of the most fun games. It's one of the games I go to when I'm playing my own games mm-hmm. with friends because... It is. It's literally poker, except you can blow the guy up and steal his <laughs> cards. And, Dude, that, that, and that it's a race. Awesome. It's like twisted metal. It's a race, and if you can get there to the finish line, you can be locked. It's almost ninja golfish in a way. Uh, you can yeah. you can lock your cards, and they can't blow you up anymore. But if you want to bump the bet and increase the bet, you unlock yourself, and then you're a target. And okay. Are there any are there any more games that I don't know about that are typical sports games? Except you kill people and you destroy things and. That could be something I just you know maybe that's or, I should probably just see you just, I should base it off of George Carlin's bit about about sports. Well, part yeah, basically that's the beauty of video games. Video, <laughs> video, and again, going all the way back to the start of this, what is this? A four-hour interview now? The start of this when you ask about influences, Looney Tunes. Yeah, that's the beauty of animation. Is you know, yes, an anvil on the head doesn't mean anything when you're a. Can we talk about what you got coming up at uh, Game Refuge? Yes. Um, Oh, he says yes. Yes. Okay. Oh, thank you. Well, actually, before we, <laughs> thank before you for your we permission. get there, though, before we get there, though, oh, you because, want to talk about my failures, don't you? No, <laughs> you, you, you're no, just itching. I don't see prototypes as failures. I see them as something that could have been that may have not gone, gotten up due to something not necessarily under your control. 
No, yeah. I take full responsibility for anything. You had, uh, I believe you have a, 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 a game, was RC Squared? RC Squared, yes. I, I was playing that, and obviously it was a, it's a work in progress when you play it, because I believe it only has like four levels or something on it, it unless I was playing it wrong. No, there is but, no... Uh, most of my games you can't play wrong. That's one thing I try to make sure you can't play them wrong. But RC I was Squared, actually having fun with that Good. One. RC Squared was... We were doing, as I uh, mentioned, EA hired us. I didn't want to come work for EA. I said I won't move to California. And I, but they said they would. I should form my own company, and and they would hire me to do games for them. And that's where we did General Chaos. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a couple other games slated: a General Chaos sequel, Major Snafu, um, <laughs> and a really cool uh, multi-character game that took place in a pyramid that I still want to do someday. There's one. I'd like to do it, but uh, and then they announced they were going to do an arcade division and wanted us to do the first game for their new EA arcade division. RC Squared was to be that game. They didn't have a hardware. We had to kind of cobble something together from so that was borrowed from somebody else. But we got onto that, and we were about three quarters. We were about a quarter of the way in when they announced they got the rights to Madden and that Madden was going to be their first EA arcade game. Okay. And Madden Football, of course, which EA had which released makes, makes on sense. every... Yeah, that's what they thought. That's well, <laughs> not what that's I true. thought, and we told them so in, a, you know, in meetings. What that's we found true. out about is we said, you've got this on every conceivable system in the world out there right that now. That is true. Why yeah. would somebody... And the hardware they had in the arcade, slated for the arcade, was not as powerful as a good home oh, system. That's true. Yeah. Why would you? Re- and then, and they released it. They pushed it out about two months before RC Squared was slated to be done, and and to massive failure. I mean, it earned no money at all. Wow! And because everybody had it at home, and they had That's a better true. version at yeah. home. So of course, it. I mean, it was a good game, but it. How? Why is it going to earn money when I can play something I can't play at home? So RC Squared was never finished. Um, and Doc here at Gallop and Ghost. I donated are the only surviving arcade cabinet with RC squared in it to Doc. So yeah, that's a. I like that game. That's a fun. Oh good, thank you, thank you. It it was fun. It it the hardware's a little wonky and the pixels kind of flicker here and there, but it was, it was ambitious. It was it was silly. I mean, obviously, prototype needs some tweaking. Yeah, it was it was not it was not finished. Well, thank you, thank you. Uh, And then uh, then you had uh, international team laser. That was. That, that was, was that was just a marketing mistake. We were told that we had a few months to do a game specifically for a European con- conference. So Jeff and I put together. I had been looking at trying to do a laser tag. Mm-hmm. It was hot at the time, and uh, we put that thing together, and it just didn't work. It was mm-hmm. complex and convoluted, and that eventually became blasted. And I believe he has a blasted over there. He does. There. I have. I've actually. I played International Team Laser. I have not played Blasted. Blasted yet. is the fun version of International <laughs> Team Laser. So International Team Laser was never released. It became Blasted. Okay. I was going to say. I was when I was playing International Team Laser. I was having a kind of a hard time trying to trying to grasp that. So I definitely right. have to give Blasted a try. Blasted is just you're a sniper shooting at people across the way while other people are shooting back at you and everything you hit causes something funny to happen it's it's a it's a shooting gallery it's just a okay. but it's a two-player shooting gallery because you can shoot at each Speaking other two players um you're mentioning that you you worked on discs of tron that would have been awesome as a two-player at the same time battle oh, wow 
But I, that, I, the kind of the cabinet would have been interesting. The, the programmer on that, Bob Dinnerman, was he was driven and he was a genius. And that game would not be a. He was the designer. He was the programmer. He was brilliant guy. He was the first guy I worked with in the industry, and he was exacting. He was demanding, and uh, he appreciated the fact that I brought animation because I guess the people that worked on it previously couldn't really get because he had very limited art space to work with. So I was pretty proud of the um, amount of animation we were able to get out of the few sprites we had. But uh, that was a great game to work on, and man, I, I love that game. I had the environmental in my basement. I had to saw it in, saw it in half to get it in my house. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was wonderful. <laughs> I think the first time I ever played that, it was the environmental. And right. after playing that, I'm like, I've played it, you know, on the stand-up. And I'm just wondering... You know, if you have the environmental, I mean, you're if you if you don't have the environmental, you're not really playing the game. It was yeah, that, it was that, it that, really that, dessert. It really the half silvered mirror, the 3D effect was marvelous. It was so and, that is a, uh, that is an awesome George game. Gomez designed that cabinet to the best of my knowledge. Uh, a great video game. Uh, one of the lead designers on uh, Spy Hunter and uh, mainly a pinball uh, mechanical designer, pinball guy these days, I believe. But uh, yeah, it, it, he was. He did that. Cabinet was incredible. I love that. So finally, why don't you tell us what's going on uh, with uh, with Game Refuge? What are you guys doing these days? What you, you got anything uh, coming up that we can look forward to uh, in a week or two? I can let you know about a new game we're doing with a uh, a startup down in Texas. That uh, for people that have been complaining that they haven't seen enough of my two D art, this should make them happy. Uh, we're I'm doing this game with a group down there, and it's. It's an overabundance of my 2D art. I'm having a fun with it, and it's full of bad puns and all kinds of other stuff. Oh, nice. Good. I can't say anything well, like. Isn't bad puns redundant? Uh, Only if, you can, if you're not witty enough to come up with your own. That's why people say it's the lowest form of comedy, because they're just jealous they can't think of it. That's right. Mm, that's true. But yes, and it's, I said it's, all of that without it's a It's a departure from the kind of stuff we've been doing. Lately, we've been, doing, we've been asked to do try to stay with this one. Games of skill mm -hmm. that have an option to turn them into betting games that legally can have no skill <laughs> in certain jurisdictions in the U.S. So these are mobile games, free-to-play mm -hmm. mobile games that look and play like games of skill. But if you are, happen to be in Oregon or California or Iowa or New York, you can hit the button and get spit out to this... Uh, it basically enables this betting process where you can win hundreds of dollars. We did a, over the years, like I said, we whoever taps us on the shoulder. We we've, we've got a number of I've got I've got a number of uh, gaming industry patents, but uh, and we did a, yeah we did a lot of fun casino stuff. But that's oh we were asking about what we're doing now. Yes. That's what yeah. we've been doing is these mobile games that you can play right now. I'll send you the links and you can put them out there if anybody cares. Um, are you are you both platforms iOS and uh, and Android? iOS and Android okay. right now. Um, and Windows is done, but the the parent company that hired us to do this hasn't released the Windows stuff yet. Um, we've got that game, like I say, I. I'm waiting for this uh, this group to, once they make the announcement, you can go to Game Refuge uh, Facebook page or our website, and I'll make an announcement there once that's around. I may, I've been ha I'm talking Fingers to three different gesture. groups here in the last few weeks, but I may, I may be doing a new arcade game oh. this year. 
and I'm real excited about that. Uh, we're, we're talking to some groups right now. Um, I hope I don't jinx it by even mentioning it. Um, <laughs> you can just leave it at that if you want. Yeah, and I can't say anything more about that or the other one until, until the actual until, announcement. Right. So, uh, yeah, no, we're just, we're just, I'm just, I'm just lucky enough to be plugging along and... Uh, Doing what you love, huh? Yeah. Awesome. That was an excellent interview with Brian Colon. A uh, very nice guy. If you ever get a chance to meet him, I would, I highly suggest he's very, very, very personable. And he's still in the business, still making games. In fact, that one game he mentioned, that Arctic Stud Poker Run, I've been trying to get it to run on my PC. And for some reason, I just can't get it running. Uh, I just wonder if it has to do with my video card. It runs. Well, you better go catch it. Uh, I hear the music, but then I just get an error message. So I'm going to try a few things to see what more I can do. But uh, it looks like a ton of fun. <laughs> I definitely want to try it. But um, So, yeah, and uh, afterwards, we went into the arcade, the Galloping Ghost, which is where we had the meeting at in the offices right next door. And um, Brian and Sean and I all played a rousing round of xenophobe with him and we will have a link to that in the show notes and that was one of the that was actually pretty cool i've never done that before well how many of us have done this before playing a game with one of its creators but uh it was uh, it was really awesome and uh brian's a fascinating guy and again thanks brian for uh, coming on our show you have an open invitation anytime so uh you know just not three in the morning because we might be busy doing something you know me and the wife might be busy doing something. It's the next episode. But at any rate. Yeah, next episode. With that. Um, yeah. And uh, by the way, spoiler alert, I suck at xenophobe. I'm good at it when I pump a bunch of tokens into it, but that's a different story for another time. And anyway. I, the one point I actually liked about this interview, though, is we did talk about the whole thing about, because he was talking about how it was important to get... Uh, for the coin in and everything. And uh, that, was, that was just one of the economic realities of the arcade at that particular juncture. The, as, uh, as I mentioned in the interview, how much is the entertainment worth to you? And a lot of those, ga- I, in my opinion, a lot of those games were worth it. And, uh, you know, there you go. So, but and again, there I go. Uh, fascinating interview. And uh, so next week we are going to actually review three games. Three? Yes, Ooh, three games. Do um, tell. But one topic in particular. And um, I'm not going to... You know what? I'm going to ruin the topic. <laughs> uh, normally, I don't ruin the theme the episode before, but I think it's uh, because of the nature of the topic. I think it's just fair to warn our listeners. Um, next episode... We didn't warn our listeners when we were talking about games in which you rip spines out of people and there's bloodshed all over the place. Well, people can take blood and guts more than they can about our next episode, but coinciding with Valentine's Day... Uh, we're going to have an episode out about adult arcade games. Yes, there were adult arcade games. And Ooh. it's the fascinating thing is not all of these games were put out by no-name companies. Even though we're going to talk about three games, I'm going only to tell you the names of two of them right now. Two of the three we're going to talk about are Lady Killer and Puznik. And I'm not going to say the third one just quite yet, but uh, the next episode is going to... Puznik, wasn't that a Russian satellite? Why, I think it was. So I'm just going to warn you, the next episode might get quite a bit NSFW. Not safe for whomever. So I'm just throwing that out there right now. So until next time, this is Jimmy G. 
Um, actually, I will continue to be Sean after next time Ooh. as well. So not just until next Tricky. time. So we will see you all in two more weeks with that. And then after that, we're going to review two more games. And that those two will actually be related to this episode. But I'm not going to tell you which two. You probably figured it out if you're oh. a regular listener. So there you go. Yeah, that, that, that's true. Of yeah. course, if you're not a regular listener, I suggest you get some laxative. There we are. Where? Bye-bye. Ciao. This episode of the Pie Factory podcast was edited and produced by Hyde St. Pierre. Opening and closing theme is The Happy L, composed by Sean Courtney. Follow the Pie Factory podcast online via the Facebook page, on Twitter at Pie Factory PFP, or the show notes page on piefactorypodcast.com. Yeah, it's, it's not going to be intimidating at all to have a camera pointed at my crotch the entire yeah. time. No, that's fine. No, if you want my artwork, it's basically uh, you got to have the headers or right. the uh, or the posters that Doc or the posters that Doc is selling at the Galloping Ghost Arcade. Okay, how to take the eBay pick? Oh, no, can I say you can get it for free right now. The name of the game is Arctic Stud Poker Run. Arctic Stud Poker Run. And if and I'll give you I'll give I've got a buttload of plugs. I wait a minute. There's got to be a better way to say that. <laughs> um, oh, I just caught what you said. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs>